invite you uh, to open your Bibles or to ask Siri to open your devices to John, John's Gospel, Chapter 5. I haven't been here the past two weeks, so I didn't hear the lead up to this, uh, this text this morning in John 5, but we're going to finish it. We're going to finish this chapter today. And uh, so let me just recap this whole chapter for you real quick, because in the first 17 verses, it recounts the healing of the, uh, the man at the pool of Bethesda and the reaction that Jesus encountered from the, from the Jews that were present. Now, just as an aside there, in the Gospel of John, whenever John uses the word Jews, He's not talking about the general population. He's talking about the, the religious leaders, the, the, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So when you come across that word Jews, he's not talking about just Jews in general. He's talking about the leadership. And last week, I guess I, as I listened to it, we partially looked at Jesus' response to these Jews. In fact, Jesus' response uh, goes from verse 19 to the end of the chapter in verse 47. And that, by the way, is all read in my Bible. And you, I don't think many of you know what that means. So if, uh, again, just as a little bit of background, if you take the Gospel of John in its entirety, you will see that it is structured in many ways like a court case where John presents the evidence and the testimony as to the nature and the personage and the divinity of Jesus. He lines it all out that way. His gospel really centers around seven signs or seven I am statements that Jesus makes, and it presents him as God, as God made flesh, God incarnate. So when, the, um, so when we get to chapter 5, we find Jesus really doing the same thing. It's like he's in court, and, he, and he's presenting his case to the people around him. It's as if he's his own defense attorney, if you will. And uh, he's in court, and he's calling witnesses to the stand to testify on his behalf. And this is the essence of this discourse that we find in chapter 5, um, at the end of the chapter 5. So what I want to do now is I just want to read, the, read the, uh, the, the rest of this chapter to you, and then we'll go back and we'll deal with it a little bit at a time. But I want you to notice the word testimony or the word witness is used ten times in this discourse. So it's very much like a court case. So let's, if you're open to chapter 5, let's begin reading in verse 25, and I'll read all the way to the end of the chapter. And uh, again, this is in red in my Bible. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. 
Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice, and shall come forth those who did the good deeds to the resurrection of life, and those who committed evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. And I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness to myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the testimony which he bears of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. But the witness which I receive is not from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. Notice that. I say these things that you may be saved. And he was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has borne witness of me, but you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom sent me, whom he sent. You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me. And you're unwilling to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and, I do not and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? May God bless his his holy word today. Will you pray with me? Lord God, I just ask that you would have me speak your truth this morning. And that if I speak the truth and it goes forth, I pray that you will cause it to bear fruit. And whatever I say that is not of you, I just ask that you let it fall to the ground and turn to dust. In Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus is defending himself. He's making his case. He's declaring himself as the Son of God. He is saying that he is one with God, that he is God. He's not just the Messiah. He is God incarnate. And in presenting his case, he calls five witnesses, five specific witnesses to the stand. It says in verse 31, he says, If I alone bear witness to myself, 
My testimony is not true. In other words, what he's saying is what I say about myself is really inadmissible in this court. So I'm going to call other witnesses to corroborate what I say about myself. So the first witness he calls is John the Baptist. And John, he says, John talked about my coming. John told you about me and who I am. And you accepted that for a while, what he said, at least at the beginning. And then the second witness, he says, that he calls is even greater than, the, than John's witness, because John's witness was just words. But the second witness is the works that I have done, the miracles, the healings, the raising of the dead. These speak louder than just words. And then there is the witness of the Father. That's number three, the Father himself. He says the Father has spoken. And if you remember at, the, at, at his baptism, uh, when John baptized Jesus, the Pharisees were present. And they were, they were witnesses to this. And they heard the voice of God coming out of the sky. And it says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then there was the second time at the transfiguration where God God's voice came from heaven. And then the fourth and the fifth witnesses that he calls are the witnesses of Scripture and of Moses. And he says the Scriptures testify to his coming from Moses. Moses wrote of him. You'll find that in the book of Deuteronomy. And then all of the prophets, they all spoke of him and they all testified to his coming. And that he was going to be the Messiah, the one that saves the nation of Israel and the people. And when, when he does show up, Jesus, they reject him. So that's the summation of this discourse, really, recorded in chapter 5. And it's really a court case. Now, when Brian asked me to preach this, uh, to you this morning, I'll be honest with you. I really wasn't all that excited about it, as he would say. And my, my initial thought was, well, I'll go through each one of these witnesses, and one by one, and I'll embellish on each one of them, and I'll fill the time, and then I'll be done. That's what I was thinking. No, that's honestly. But then... For some reason, in a weak moment, I decided to ask God what he wanted me to talk about this morning. And that, by the way, is a lesson in being careful what you pray for. Because he woke me up in the middle of the night, Wednesday night, about 2 to 3 o'clock in the morning. And he answered that prayer, and he said, I want you to call a sixth witness to the stand a sixth witness that will testify about my son. And then he said, and I want you to be that witness. So this morning, I'm going to be the sixth witness. I'm going to give you my testimony, if you will. And I know some of you have heard this before, but most of you haven't. 
When I was a kid, when I grew up, I, my parents were two of the most devout Christians that you'll find in this world. In fact, and, and especially my dad. My dad was one of the most devout and dedicated Christians that I've ever known. Um, and he had the... <laughs> He had the personality of an Old Testament prophet. I mean, with him, there was no gray area in his faith. It was all, it was black and it was white and there was no in between. And I can, and he preached Christ to his two boys incessantly over and over again. And and I, I tell you, if I heard this once, I heard it a thousand times. He would say to me, son... You have to choose. You have to choose between life in Christ or death in sin. If I heard that once, I heard it a thousand times. And I will tell you this. We literally, as a family, had Christianity for dinner every night, all the time. And we went to church every Sunday. And there was no option there because he he said, if your feet are under my table... You're going to church. And so we did. We went to church every Sunday all of my childhood years. And I went because I didn't have any options. And I played the game. I went to, but I got to tell you this, and this is the truth. I really didn't buy this stuff. And I really didn't want any part of my old man's religion or his Jesus. And I want to be real clear about this. You see, I, I believed in Jesus. I knew he was real. But I didn't want any part of him. I didn't want him to be part of my life. So I flat out rejected him. I didn't just say, Jesus, yeah, I didn't put him off and say, maybe some other time. I flat out rejected him. I didn't want him in my life. And I told him, I told him, I said, go away and leave me alone. Well, he didn't. Thanks be to God, he didn't because... Later on, I think it was in 1978 or 79, (coughs) I was driving down to Springfield on business, and I pulled over to the side of the road on an off-ramp, exit 126 in Lincoln, Illinois. And I sat there in my car, and crying like a baby, I accepted him into my life. I uh, I just couldn't run and hide anymore. I finally said, all right, if you want me that bad, you can have me. And to be honest with you, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And I had no idea what God was going to do. All I knew was at the time was that I meant it. Well... Fast forward a little bit, in 1982, I started to teach a class, a Bible class at my church, teaching from the Bible, and I've been doing that ever since, so for about 40 years. 
And if you would ask me, over all those years, what was the most defining moment in my Christian life, I would tell you of a time time when I was teaching from the book of Exodus. Uh, By the way, Exodus is my favorite book in all the Bible, but I came across this prayer in Exodus 33, verse 13, a prayer that Moses prayed, and this is what he prayed. He said, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, teach me your ways, that I might know thee, and that I might find favor in your sight. Now, When I first read that, it didn't make any sense at all. It just seemed non sequitur. In fact, it was redundant. It's like Moses saying, Lord, if I have pleased you, teach me your ways so that I can know how to please you. It just was a little weird. But then when I really started to think about it, I realized how profound it was. By the way... Uh, God answered that prayer of Moses because in Psalm 103, verse 7, it says, God revealed his ways to Moses and his mighty acts to the children of Israel. He revealed his ways to Moses and his mighty acts to the children of Israel. And there is a big difference between the two, folks, because the mighty acts of God, they're temporary. They come and they go. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. But the ways of God are eternal. The way, and you think about you think about your prayer life. Think about what we pray about. When don't we don't we want to see God's mighty acts? I mean, we say, God do this, God do that, God change this, God fix this, God heal this, God... Those are the mighty acts of God, and they are temporary. They come and go. But rarely do we ever seek God's ways, why he does things, what's what's he... You know, (laughs) Albert Einstein, I I don't think Einstein was a big Christian or anything, but somebody asked him once about miracles. He said, do you... Do you believe in miracles? And he said, well, either miracles don't exist at all or everything's a miracle. And then they ask him about God. What is, and he says, well, I, w- I want to know God's thoughts because everything else are just details. I, again, I don't think he was that much of a Christian, but he, he got the point. He understood God's ways are eternal, but his mighty acts, they come and they go. So that brings me back to John chapter 5. I know there's an Illinois game on, and you all want to get out of here early. But maybe, maybe not. Back to John chapter 5. Between verses 22 and 30, Jesus uses the words judge or judgment or just eight times. And I want to talk about God's ways this morning, especially his ways when it comes to judging and judgment. Um, Because this is what I want to share with you. I want to talk to you about God's judgment this morning. Because it's really not what we think. In fact, 
over a year ago, I was having lunch with, with Brian, and we were discussing this topic. Do you remember that? And he says, you know, Pitzer, you ought to come here and preach that sometime. Well, that never happened, but today's the day. Okay. The Bible says, again, about the ways of God. The Bible says that God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are not our ways. So I want us to see the ways of God as it pertains to judgment. You see, in our way of thinking, our tendency, when we look at judgment, we see judgment in terms of condemnation. Judgment is getting what you deserve. Judgment is getting your just desserts, your just rewards. And we think that judgment is a manifestation of punishment. Isn't that, the, isn't that the way we, that man judges? And that's the way we see it. It's a manifestation of getting what you deserve. And in our way of thinking, we see it in terms of condemnation. Judgment is getting what you deserve. But it's not God's way. It's not the way he judges. With God, judgment is not condemnation. Now, don't get me wrong. Condemnation can be a result of God's judgment, but it's not the purpose. If you look at this in the biblical sense, throughout the Bible, you will see that God's judgment is simply the replacing of unrighteousness with righteousness. Let me say that again. God's judgment is simply the replacing of unrighteousness with righteousness. It's removing unrighteousness and replacing it with unrighteousness. It is not condemnation. It is not the destruction. Now again, That can be the result of God's judgment. But just as often, you will also see the result of God's judgment is salvation. It's redemption. It's restoration and reconciliation. That is also a product of God's judgment. And I tell you, folks, when when God showed me this, you know, I've been praying that prayer of Moses for many, many years. I pray it as often as I think of it. Lord, if I found favor in your sight, teach me your ways so that I might know you and I might find favor in your sight. And he's answered that prayer with me. And when I come to this this understanding of God's judgment, it blows my mind. I mean, when you think about it, when we come to understand it this way, when we see God's judgment as removing unrighteousness and replacing it with righteousness, we don't see him as a vengeful God that meets out justice, that he's some angry God standing up on the top of a mountain with a quiver full of lightning bolts just waiting for the unsuspecting sinner to come walking by. We don't see God that way when we look at his judgment in these terms. We see a loving God 
who is manifesting his grace through judgment. You know, that's the purpose behind God's judgment. Not man's judgment, God's judgment. It is not to destroy. It's to redeem and to restore and to reconcile. You know, the Bible says it this way. The Bible says it is not the will of the Father that anyone should perish. You know, if you go back through the Old Testament and you look at all the time, you, you, you go through the Bible and you'll see this all through it. It's just, you know, when we, we look at it, I mean, think about Egypt. Think about, you know, all the plagues in Egypt. You remember those? Those are God's judgment coming. Well, what were... Why did God do that? What was the purpose behind all those plagues? Was it, was it to destroy Egypt? No. It was to set his people free. It was to redeem his people. The same is true of the flood. The same, by the way, the same is true in the book of Revelation. If you read through the book of Revelation, you see all these plagues and all this, this judgment that's coming on the earth. Why is God doing that? Because he's tr- he wants to redeem the people. In fact, in verse six or in chapter sixteen, it says that after all these plagues came, the people still would not repent. It says that twice. But God's purpose wasn't the destruction of these people; it was to bring them to repentance. And it says they wouldn't repent. You look at the prophets. You go through the prophets, and pr- the prophets were God's intermediary. They were, they were representatives of God to the people, and they would come to the people, and they would talk to them about the way they were living and all this other stuff, and they would forecast and prophesy that judgment is coming. So they were representing God to the people, but they also represented the people to God. They interceded on behalf of the people to God. And, you know, when you look at their prayers and what they asked God to do, it wasn't, it wasn't about condemnation. They didn't, want to destroy, they didn't want God to destroy the people. They wanted God to restore righteousness in the people, to replace the unrighteousness that was out there with righteousness in the people. That's what David, you go through the Psalms, And time and time again, David prays to God and he says, God, judge me. Judge me. He asked God to judge him. Now, if judgment was all about condemnation, who would pray for that? No. In fact, he says it this way in Psalm 51. He said, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Take my... Judge me, take my unrighteousness and replace it with your righteousness. Now, what am I doing? I could go on all day about this, folks, so I gotta gotta keep going. This is really hard for us to get our heads around. I know that. Because we really, one of the reasons is we really cannot grasp the uh, the righteousness of God. That is not something we can get our heads around. We can't perceive 
of a righteousness that is so pure, that is so flawless and so perfect, a righteousness that is so pure that any exposure to even the slightest blemish would contaminate and, and, to, and would negate it in its entirety. In other words, let me put it to, unrighteousness and righteousness cannot coexist in the same space. In other words, God cannot even be in the same room with sin. Do you see that? It, it can't coexist. It's a little easier to understand this if you, uh, well, if you think of it in terms of light and darkness. Um, that's, by the way, that's the way Jesus describes it. If you, how many of you have ever been in a dark room when there's absolutely no right? Or, you know, I remember we went down and we went to Merrimack Caverns one time and they turned out all the lights and it was so dark you couldn't even, couldn't even see anything in front of you. And then they turned on the lights and the darkness was gone. There was no darkness. That's the same. You go into a dark room, and it's pitch black, and you turn on the lights, and the darkness is gone. Light and darkness cannot coexist in the same space. It's that way with unrighteousness and righteousness. And let's look at how this works. Um, I'm just going to turn to John, John's Gospel, chapter 1. Because John puts it in these terms, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that, was, that had come into being. And then he says this, In Him was life. Remember, Jesus said that in John 5. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And then if we turn to John chapter 3, and if you remember that, this is the interchange that he had with Nicodemus, the Pharisees. And you all know John 3.16, right? That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You remember that one, right? But if you read on, in verse 17, it says, For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, say, right, and condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. This is the purpose of God's judgment. He who believes in him is not judged, and he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And now verse 19, this is critical. And he says, and this, by the way, this is all in red in my Bible. He says, and this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light. For their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light 
that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Light and darkness. Think righteousness and unrighteousness. They cannot coexist. And by the way, if you remember, they just said in verse 19, this is the judgment. Where does the condemnation come from? Where does the condemnation come from? You know, we cannot enter into the presence of God. We cannot have fellowship with the Father if we bear any unrighteousness at all because they can't coexist in the same space. When Jesus died on the cross, I want you to hear this. When Jesus died on the cross, when the light of the world was hanging up there, God judged all of mankind. His judgment came on all of mankind when Jesus hung on that cross. And those of us who reject that light and choose the darkness, we are condemned. We are condemned. But where does the condemnation come from? Not from God. It comes from us. It's our choice. You see, my dad was right all those years ago. He said, you got to choose, son. You either choose life in Christ or death in sin. But it's your choice. And that's where condemnation comes from. It doesn't come from God. But on the other hand, so, so condemnation can be the result of judgment, right? Okay, but on the other hand, if we believe in Christ, if we receive Christ, if we accept Christ, then all of a sudden our unrighteousness is removed and it is replaced by his righteousness. And it's the same judgment. It's the same judgment for all. It can lead to condemnation or it can result in salvation. Either way. And this is going to move your cheese. Either way, the judgment is a manifestation of God's grace. Did you hear that? It is a man judgment God's judgment is a manifestation of his grace. Because condemnation is not his choice. It's ours. It's what John Wesley referred to as justifying grace. Notice the word grace there. And it's what theologians call imputed righteousness. Where God's righteousness is attributed to us. Jesus' righteousness is assigned to us. It's imputed to us. It is his righteousness replacing our unrighteousness. And that's what judgment is. You know, last week, I went online. I wasn't here, but I went online and heard what Brian had to say. Brian talked a little bit about judgment. And he said that when we believe and we accept Christ, 
then our judgment is behind us. It's in the rearview mirror. How many of you remember he said that? Well, I want to expand on that a little bit because it's a true statement. The judgment is behind us when we accept Christ. But it's not the whole truth. And I was trying to think about how to, how to explain this or get it across. And, and I was thinking about it. My mind does tricky things to me sometimes. But uh, my wife and I are going to go to Disney World this next week. And I was, I was thinking about this subject. And so I thought I'd let, I thought I'd let Walt Disney explain it to you. How many of you are familiar with the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? If you are, raise your hand. You know Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Well, did you know that only one of the Seven Dwarfs was happy? (laughs) Or to say it another way, six of the Seven Dwarfs were not happy. Now, both of those statements are true, aren't they? But they're not the whole truth. They're not the whole truth. Now, I told you earlier, God called me to be a witness this morning. And you know what witnesses do before they take the stand. They stand up there with their hand on their Bible. They raise their hand and they they ask them, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you, God. Well, that's what I'm going to try to do here. I'm going to try to share with you the whole truth. Because what Brian said about judgment being in the rearview mirror is the truth. But it's not the whole truth. Because God's judgment doesn't stay there. It's behind us, but it's also next to us. It's also all around us. It's it's not God's judgment. The replacing of unrighteousness with righteousness is not a one and done. It's not a one-time shot. And I tell you this because I know it's true. It's true in my own life, in my own relationship with God. God's judgment is not one and done. It's ongoing. And I'm here to testify to that. I'm here to bear witness to that, that God's judgment is with me every single day. And it's not condemnation, it's the replacing of unrighteousness with righteousness. It's all around me. It's behind me, it's with me, and it's in front of me. God is constantly and incessantly, in my case, incessantly through the work of his Holy Spirit working to replace my unrighteousness with his righteousness. This is what Wesley referred to as sanctifying grace. And again, it's grace. It's a manifestation of God's grace. The judgment that comes to me every day is a manifestation of God's grace on for me. It's what theologians call imparted righteousness. You've got imputed righteousness. That is, imputed righteousness is what God has done for us. 
through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. That's in his righteousness is imputed. It covers us. It, it is ascribed to us. That's imputed righteousness. Imparted righteousness is what God does in us. It is the work of the Holy Spirit working in us to replace our unrighteousness with his righteousness. Imputed righteousness works from the outside in. Imparted righteousness works from the inside out. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. In both cases, it's God's judgment. In both cases, it's a manifestation of his grace. Not, his, not some vengeance that God is working. That's the way we look at judgment, but that's not it. It is replacing unrighteousness with righteousness. You know, I'll give you another example. I have been in this book for a long, long time. And every time I open it, every time I start to read it and, and meditate on it, I experience a form of God's judgment every single time. Because I literally live out what Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where he says, All Scripture is inspired by God for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It is the replacing of my unrighteousness with his. You know, this morning, I thought about this, because we confessed our sins, didn't we, this morning? In fact, we, we do that every Sunday, don't we? We confess before God. <laughs> you ever wonder why we do that? You ever wonder? You ever think about it? I mean, why, why do we do that? I mean, if our judgment is one and done, and it's out there in our rearview mirror, and our sinfulness and so forth, and, and the it's, t- it's totally settled when we came to Christ. If that's the case, then why do we do that every Sunday? Why do we bother? We do it because it's part of God's ongoing judgment, isn't it? It's part of it's. John puts it this way in, in 1 John. He says, if we confess our sin... God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and do what? Cleanse us from all what? It is ongoing judgment and ongoing grace. Do you see it? You know, when you get your head around this and you figure this out, it changes everything in your Christian life. God's judgment is not condemnation. It is a manifestation of his grace. It is all fearful of God's judgment. We shouldn't be. We should, like David, ask God to judge us constantly. 
it was something we should embrace, not try to hide from, like I did. Jesus put it this way. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Sometimes we don't even know where to begin with you. But this this understanding, these ways that you show us, Lord, we just... We just come before you now, and we, like David, we ask, we ask that you come upon us, your spirit move in us, and impart your righteousness to us, and create in us a clean and righteous heart. Judge us, Lord. Judge us. And make us into that which you would have us be. I thank you for this time and I thank you for this understanding and this wisdom. And I just pray that it bears fruit in Jesus' name.